Good morning, Rick. How are you, sir? I'm great. It's great to be on the air with you. Yes. So we have the Honorable State Senator David Gibbons in studio for our State of the State segment presented by United Producers. And uh, you're pretty good friends with one of our sales ladies. That well, I call her the sales queen, Tina, by the way. We've got to give her a shout out. Tina deserves a shout out. And I understand there may be uh, talents that Tina has that I was not aware of regarding muffins. Yeah, she bakes really good muffins. Uh, oh, look, my gosh. Look forward to that. They're incredible. You're going to probably roll over and take a nap when you get home <laughs> after eating one of these things. I'm about ready to fall asleep right now. Uh, so, hey, it's, it's a pleasure to meet you. It's my first time meeting you since I've arrived here. And uh, you have a pretty interesting service area uh, as a state senator. You kind of explained it to me before we went on the air today, but explain it again for me. Let's see if the light bulb goes off for me because I'm still kind of getting my bearings around here. Geographically, it's a wonderful service area that I have the honor of representing, which is the 9th Senate District, Mm -hmm. comprised of my home county of Greene County, Barron County, Medcalf, and then Monroe, Allen, and Simpson across that Tennessee line. So I've okay. got a really diverse region, about two-hour drive from my home community of Greensburg, Green County on the northeast side okay. to Franklin and Simpson County uh, on the southwest corner. But a uh, wonderful region, lays largely around Warren County and, yeah. uh, and the Bowling Green area. So Interesting. It's, it's a great space. That's, that's quite a territory, too. Great ag community. My background's yeah. in agriculture. Uh, grew up on a farm. We own and operate a family farm supply business there in Greensburg. And this district lends itself to agriculture. I brag often that this is one of the best ag districts in the entire state, if not the best ag region mm-hmm. in the entire state. Yeah, and lots of dairy farms here too. Dairy beef, which uh, surprised me. Poultry, by the way. yeah. Grain farms, great, great ag diversity in the space, uh, along with some really interesting economic things that are going on, especially in the the southern edge of the district with yeah. Franklin and Simpson and, and uh, the growth there, Glasgow and the hot happening things that are going on in Glasgow and Barron County and the industrial development space. So it's a it's a neat community to get to represent. And Glasgow just added a bunch of jobs with a pharmaceutical company, right? Glasgow has things hopping there right now, and mm-hmm. uh, community leaders are doing a really nice job of, of revitalizing that attraction of business and industry. And, and one of the fascinating things, if you look at what draws businesses to a community or causes businesses to expand in a region, we don't talk enough about it, but it's workforce. Mm-hmm. The raw talent is what these business and industries search so much for, uh, a skilled, able workforce that, that can take on new tasks and any more show up, on, show up to work on time, put their cell phones away, and do a great day's work. And yeah. thankfully... It ties together two of the things we've already talked about. That ag background and that sense of work ethic is inherent in these rural communities, and that's something that uh, business and industry is starting to discover they can they can find here in South Central Kentucky. And when you have talent locally, you have to grow that talent over a period of time uh, in the schools and the communities. So what, what are some of the indicators of, of that happening, why we're being so fortunate to have that much talent in this area for the workforce? Great question, Rick, and it goes to largely what I think the key role of state government is. Mm-hmm. If you look at what we spend money on, taxpayer money, not government money, because let's let's make sure we all understand <laughs> that there is no free money in the space. The, right. These are taxpayer dollars. Sixty percent of our state budget goes to education. That includes that workforce component. It is a key role of state government. Infrastructure and and corrections being a lot of the other space that we spend money on. In that workforce space, we've got an opportunity to invest in our young people which pays dividends for our communities for years to come. And ultimately, if we do it right, it drives up revenues for us to be able to fund the other pieces of government. Right. 
So it's an exciting place to be. I do a lot of work in that uh, education policy space. I do a lot of work in that workforce development space. And it's always a, a moving, elusive target because the needs change, the expectations change, the demands change, but it still boils down to quality people doing a great job in our, in our teaching space, which we're blessed to have K-12 through and post-secondary, WKU. I've got two children here on the Hill at Western now. Graduate from Western myself, met my wife here years ago, and neat, neat things happening in that education space. So one question for you, and I don't know if you have an answer to this or not, but uh, I'm from Indiana, and one thing that Indiana— We forgive you for that. <laughs> one thing—I uh, don't know if I forgive myself for that. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, one thing that Indiana has struggled with over the years, and I just remember this from living there for quite, quite some time as an adult, too, is they were struggling for quite a while to keep kids from moving away. Uh, you know, retaining that talent that they had developed over the years. What is uh, what is something we're doing here regionally to to help with that? Do you have an answer for that? Brain drain is what we call it, and there's okay. no there's no single silver bullet solution to that challenge. But I will say to you that uh, creating livable communities, creating communities people want to raise their families in, is something that always brings people back home. A mm-hmm. sense of place, a sense of community. When I leave here from from this interview with you today, I'm headed to Scottsville to do a celebration down there. They've got a business that's been in the community for over 50 years. They're doing a a field day sort of thing in one of their ag businesses. I'm looking forward to going down and hanging out with Mm -hmm. those folks and spending some time with them. That sense of community is what brings a lot of these people back. We've got to create these educational opportunities. We've got to create these these, uh, opportunities for them to grow their families, grow their wealth, When you think about agriculture, that ownership of land is one of those things that causes people to take root in a community and stay. And uh, that that continues to be a driver. As we see people looking for a space to raise their children, that's when that light bulb moment will often happen with people to say, hey, I've gotten out, I've gotten my network, I've gotten my education, getting ready to start my family or my children getting ready to start school. Where do I want them to start? Where's a good, safe school space for my children to go to school and, and grow up in a community? Boy, this is the place. Mm-hmm. Think yeah. about the things that we have to celebrate around here in terms of school safety, in terms of good educational opportunities, in terms of uh, community involvement, in terms of parks, recreation, places children and families can, can raise themselves. That's the moment when I think we can bring those young people back get them to reinvest in the community. And you want to talk about a space that's just booming right now. Franklin Simpson, Glasgow, here in Bowling Green, even my rural regions of, of uh, Medcalf and, and Green and Monroe and, and Allen Counties, those communities mm-hmm. are doing really well because they have that sense of place and that sense of self. I just saw recently that uh, Glasgow High School got ranked second, second best high school in the state, according to Niche.com, which uh, that's all they do is is surveys like that. I mean, that's their bread and butter is figuring out what's the best of the best. I mean, how how incredible is that it's for Barron awesome County? Thing. It's an awesome thing for Barron County. And to have that that competitive drive that goes on between those school districts there of Barron County and mm-hmm. Glasgow and the desire to excel, all of us win when, when the tide rises. A rising tide lifts all the boats. Right. And uh, we have that thing going on there. You've got the Gatton Academy here, the number one public high school yes. in the United States of America, the Gatton Academy. Holy that's cow. That's a flag to, to, to wave proudly. How many high schools are there in the country? Uh, gazillions, I would presume. Yeah. Thousands. So, so yeah, yeah. Uh, that's something to celebrate. 
those educational opportunities are rare. And to, to have the Glasgow school system doing what they're doing, the Barron County system, uh, the other systems that I have the honor of representing, there's some excellence in that space. And it mm-hmm. largely goes to the teachers on the front line. I appreciate the administrators and the staff and everybody involved. The bus drivers make a huge difference in these kids' lives. Yeah. Those teachers on the front line, day in and day out, working to, to draw the excellence out of these children that is inherent in them is something that I applaud all the educators for. Yeah. Uh, I, I feel like teachers should be paid more. What do you think? No, I'm just kidding. Uh, that's, a, that's a great policy discussion, and it, it's one I love to engage in. Uh, yeah. you, you've got to have a full thought, and you've got to have a lot longer than just the five minutes we're going to have together to have that conversation. Right, and it's it, you know, well, I'll I'll, I'll move on from that. Uh, so uh, before we continue, what uh, what else did you want to talk about? I forgot to ask you. Yeah, uh, hey, any any. Thing you want to talk about in, in the state policy space, we've got some good revenue numbers for the fiscal year okay. ending, which is going to help put us in a good place as we get ready to write the budget next session. Next session is the long session. So, so when we gavel in in January, let's, we, let's start there because okay. I'm going to edit all that out. And then so I'll just sure. restart the conversation here. So heading into 2020, which unbelievable, it's almost here mm-hmm. already. Uh we're hearing that the state of Kentucky has some great end-of-year numbers, and that's going to set us up really well in 2020. Elaborate on that a little bit. So the fiscal year ends the end of June. We okay. start the, the second year of this biennium, this budget biennium. We started it July the 1st. We ended that fiscal year uh, in, in the black in a very positive way, about $130 million of revenue above projections after after some other governmental expenses were taken out. So we start at a good, positive position. The economy's growing. The mood is very positive right now. Rural communities are seeing some of the lowest unemployment rates they've seen in my lifetime. Uh, and, and that's exciting. That means the economy is vibrant. People are feeling good about things. And as a result, we've got some state revenues to invest. We're going to continue to have to invest a lot of those monies in pensions mm-hmm. as we address... Uh, a legacy sort of challenge in the unfunded pension liability space. And a lot of people will point to the solution being just dollars to solve pensions. That's wrong. That's totally wrong. Mm-hmm. If you look at the funding challenge we've got there, we're about 20% of the problem is funding. The rest is management. The rest is fees that are higher than they should be. The rest involves some decisions that projections that weren't accurate. Right. So funding is going to be part of us continuing to deal with this pension challenge. As, as you and a lot of your listeners heard, we ended a special session in the middle of summer, got through a five-day special session to address pensions. We made some good policy decisions in a very difficult space. None of those affected teacher pensions. Uh, we, we made some pension gains with the results of the work we did in that legislative special session. But again, there's a lot of pension work to be done. And I don't want any of your listeners to be ill-informed. We haven't, fin- we haven't finished wrestling this pension challenge. We're yeah. going to be at least 30 more years digging our way out of these legacy pension challenges that uh, they existed before I was elected 10 years ago. And they'll exist hmm. probably long after my time is finished serving. But we're moving in the right direction of funding and resolving some of the structural challenges that these pension systems face. So I've just come back to Kentucky in the last six months. Uh, c- can you kind of just in, in very briefly explain to me what the pension challenge is? Because I'm not real familiar with it, to be honest with you. H- how did this all start in, and what's the backstory to it? It goes back a long ways. Uh, you, 
it, it goes back to promises made to people that were promises greater than future General Assemblies could keep and future taxpayers could bear the burden of. Once those promises were made, we have to fulfill them, uh, largely in the space of, uh, of contracts that are made, largely in the space of promises made that, that I do feel like the Commonwealth has to stand good for. In doing that, people are living longer, people are retiring at retirement ages that are younger, and the taxpayers are being asked to bear the burden of long-term, not only bear the, the financial burden, but bear the risk of market downturn mm-hmm. in a space that a lot, of your, uh, a lot of your GEs and your General Motors and others have discovered they can't bear that ongoing uh, defined benefit for the rest of someone's life. Right. So we're starting to transition the Kentucky retirement systems from a, a promise for the rest of your life where the taxpayers bear all the burden we're, we're starting to transition those pension systems over to uh, defined spaces where the, the, the burden is shared, the risk is shared, and in turn we're going to be able to free up money to hopefully pay state workers more money up front. Gotcha. That's, it's a long-term challenge, though. We're going to be 30 years paying off these legacy costs. And if you look at it, Rick, we have what is cited, sadly enough, as the worst-funded pension system in the United States of America, the worst-funded public state pension system in the United States of America, hmm. sadly enough, is Kentucky. And it's a combination of things. It's not just the money. It's some structural challenges that are inherent in the systems, decisions that were made years ago, promises, again, that were made. So a lot of news was made of the governor's pension plan. I've heard a lot about that. What was that all about? So the governor's been leading in ways that sometimes uh, uh, enthrall people. Yes. Enthrall meaning positive excitement. That's the sense I got. Negative excitement at times as well. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, yeah. But to the governor's credit, he's been willing to take this on and say, we're going to do this. Mm -hmm. And he's not only said we're going to do it with his leadership and the leadership of us in the General Assembly, my colleagues in the Senate, my colleagues in the House. We have funded pensions in the last two budgets at a level never before seen in the Commonwealth. Part of the solution is going to have to be funding. Part of the solution is going to have to continue to be tough decisions around what benefits look like. Hmm. And uh, the governor has stepped out, has led in some ways uh, inartfully, right? but in other ways, well, he, well, certainly well-guided in my mind about the path that he wants to put us on to resolve the taxpayer's burden and the Commonwealth's burden around this pension conversation. Gotcha. Um, so what what is that exactly? Do, do you... I mean, I, I haven't really had a chance to read up on it. So when you say he stepped out to head it in a certain direction, what is that direction? The direction the governor wanted to take us in initially was going to be solely a 401k model. Yeah. Now, what happens, Rick, is, and the complexities, we're going to get into this, and I'm glad to go as deep as you want. The complexities of what's going on here is if you bifurcate the system into two totally separate systems and you start putting all new state workers into a true 401k you end up in a space where the taxpayers are having to fund and stand up two pension systems. Ah. We can't do that. We, can't, we cannot bear the cost of transitioning and cold turkey stopping one and standing up a new one. So the solution that we've argued for, and finally the governor came around to listening to us on, was a hybrid cash balance model okay. where the state employees and state workers fund uh, a portion of that cost, the taxpayers bear a portion of that cost because pensions are something that we do owe to our quality state workers. In doing so, in keeping this hybrid sort of cash balance system, 
mm-hmm. we can use current revenues and current investments to continue funding our ongoing pension liabilities at the same time shifting workers over to a more sustainable model. Ah. So this guaranteed no-loss return model of a hybrid cash balance lets us keep all the money in one pool. We finally were able to get the governor on, on the page with us to do that. Now we're starting to, to transition the systems over to that model. Right. With the exception of the teacher retirement system, that model is still as it currently was 10 years ago and, and back. We're going to have to continue to have a conversation in that space because that teacher retirement system is something that's so vitally important for retired teachers and current teachers. Mm-hmm. It's also something that we know that as we make promises to new teachers, we've got to be able to, to sustain and fulfill those promises. So we want to so be careful. So you're not in this situation again. <laughs> well, we, we've, we've started yeah. to narrow it down to the teacher retirement system. Gotcha. And, and anyone who says, let's not talk about it, let's just push money at it, that's mm-hmm. not something that I'm willing to do because that's not fair to teachers, that's not fair to taxpayers, and that's not fair to my children, and future generations are going to have to bear the cost of our decision. There has to be a reasonable solution to everything. And there are. Yeah. There are. But now, reasonable solutions mean change. Yes. And change creates uh, frightening things for lots of people. Right. Because they're, they're used to it one way. Sure. And now it's and, and, going to be this way. And Rick, yeah. anytime we make change, be it in the policy space of pensions, be it in the policy space of the judicial system, be it in the policy space of post-secondary education, mm-hmm. change is where the pain often comes because change means something we don't know really well. Perfect case in point, one of the things I've had the chance to work on over the years and have enjoyed working on, about five years' worth of work went into a new post-secondary funding model that impacts taxpayers, that mm. impacts Western Kentucky University, that that impacts all of our, our public institutions. For years, and this is a budget model that you've just got to, you, you look at it and you start to say, why? For years, we funded post-secondary education and a lot of our other budget units around a shares model, a shares model saying, what did you get in the last budget? What percentage of the revenue going into that space did you get? That's what we're going to give you again. really doesn't matter how you're performing. doesn't matter what kind of outcomes you're getting. Hmm. So we've moved post-secondary education funding over to a performance-based, outcomes-based model. It says, what's your graduation rate? What's your retention rate? What's your student loan cost that, that students are graduating with? Are you getting degrees in the right fields where job demand is. As a result of those institutions that are doing that, you're going to get a larger share of the pie. Those institutions that aren't doing that, you're going to be incentivized to change the way that you deliver education. I think we've got other spaces in in government where we can do those sorts of performance models, and I'm excited about us continuing to have those conversations. So this leads to another question, and I am no way qualified to to guess if they're related or not but you know it's no secret western has been cutting a lot of programs is that based around maybe this model they're they're focusing on degrees that they know are in demand versus just having a lot of programs just to have them i don't presume to know the answer but i'm going to share with you that i certainly do think that performance-based outcomes model is something all the institutions are moving toward Mm -hmm. western included uh I'm excited about the changes that are going on at the Hill. As I mentioned earlier, I've got two sons that are there. Uh, yeah. One's in the Gatton program and one's a sophomore, and both are really enjoying Bowling Green and, and the opportunity to get an education here. Western and all of our institutions are facing uh, the change inherent in a moving target. When the economy's good with low unemployment like we have right now, 
Typically, we see enrollment numbers going down. You build a ship to hold so many people, suddenly the number of passengers on the ship start to decline. You have to start looking at doing things differently. Yeah. In addition, Western and other, other public universities in Kentucky rightly make the case that as a result of the 2008 decline and the, the economic challenges we faced and have continued to face from 2008 up until now, state investment of general fund dollars in post-secondary education has gone down. Hmm. That revenue model for all of these public institutions has flipped from a large state-funded portion to a much smaller state-funded portion and a larger tuition-funded portion. In doing that, all of these systems are being challenged to be more efficient. And hmm. I think a lot of the changes you've seen at Western is a result of that. Interesting. Um, what else you got for me? Anything? Anything on your mind? Anything? Actually, that's what I do at the end of every state of the state. I ask, what's on your mind? What What do you want to talk about to your constituents? What do you want to say to them? Like, as of this moment, what's running through your mind that you want to work on or get done or, or challenge or whatever you want to say? Go for it. Rick, thanks for the opportunity to be on your program and, and, and responding to your uh, open mic question. I've had the chance to serve for uh, 11 years now. This is this is my 11th year as an elected official, state senator. Never held public office before. Uh, I've been fascinated by the quality of the people that we have in the Commonwealth, getting to travel the state, getting to see the policy challenges that we face. And they're very real. The challenges we face impact families in ways that, that I've, I still today am am struck by as i was coming in i was listening on the news and there's a sadly enough there's news of a mclean county coal mine that's closing oh it's gonna be closing the end of the month and that's 170 jobs that are going to be lost and i was thinking about those 170 families that had planned the arc of their life to be something and now it's going to be something different as a result of the economic challenges these challenges are always going to face our commonwealth. We've got great women and great men that are fighting every day to, to create jobs and create opportunities. If I had anything at all to say to my, to my constituents that I have uh, had the honor of representing for nine years, it would first be what an honor that it's been to represent you for nine going on ten years now. Secondly, it would be for us to always realize these women and these men and these families that open the, their businesses, open the radio stations, open the bakeries, open the farm supply business, open the tire stores. These folks that wake up every day risking their livelihoods are to be so commended for what they do in communities. And we see it all across my Senate district, all across the Commonwealth. When the volleyball team needs to be sponsored, who do you go to? Mm-hmm. You go to the mom-and-pop shops. That's right. And thankfully, we have a lot of people that are still willing to risk every day their livelihood. And I hope the work I do as a state legislator creates policy that creates space for these folks to do it and do it well. It's an, it's an honor. By the way, you said you're going uh, to where after this interview? Headed to Scottsville, Kentucky. And what's the business that's been in business for 50 years? Southern States down there is celebrating... Okay. Uh, uh, an anniversary, I think it's the 50th anniversary of business presence there in Scottsville and Allen County. And that's just one example uh, yeah. of so many good businesses that create the fabric of this, uh, this commonwealth and create the fabric of South Central Kentucky. And when you think about those McLean County miners or, or the Southern States employees that I'm headed down to talk with today and celebrate this with, that's where the money comes from to put food on these people's tables. 
and that matters. That and, the, matters. and the community supports those businesses. They too. do. They yeah. do. And it's a it's it's beneficial both ways. It's yeah. beneficial to the community. It's beneficial to that business. And it's beneficial to the state because state the state gets revenue from those business enterprises that do well to fund the sort of things we've been talking about during this interview. Interesting. Interesting stuff. I, I like the way your brain works. Hi, Rick. You're kind. Uh, I do. I, I like the way your brain works. I like how you explain things. Um, I can see why you've been elected so many times. Well, thank you. It, it, it's, <laughs> it is. It is I, I, I tell people. I truly enjoy the policy work. I don't always love the politics. Mm-hmm. You've got to win the politics to get to do the policy that matters. But I love the policy. It's fascinating, and it's an honor to get to do it. Well, thank you for coming in. Thank you very much. State of the state, Senator David Givens. You're going to come back, right? I look forward to it, Rick. Okay, and I will have more questions by then, I promise. Sounds great. <laughs> thank you.